This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. So this really brings to a close our symposium on the role of myth and stories in anthropogeny, exploring the extraordinary role and power of oral traditions and myth in the process of becoming human. We've taken a long journey beginning a million years ago, seeking to trace the domestication of fire, which eventually carved out a niche of social time and space for the transmission of myths and stories. And Michael Chazan has given us wonderful talk on this. No doubt this new form of art and communication transformed early human societies through the exchange of experience, knowledge, and ideas, as in Brian Boyd's presentation. Contributions have identified cultural universals in myths, explaining the origins of humans, animals, landscapes, and ceremonies. I don't think you'll find any traditional society that doesn't have origin myths explaining that in what is the time before ancestors. And this was so essential for binding people together in common understandings about social groups, the environment, and so on. But such myths also attest to the human curiosity, imagination, and interest in quest to explain the unknown, as um, Brandon Barker, I think, has pointed out very clearly. With the expanded art forms for communication, knowledge of others, social ties, and institutions could be transmitted to form a much larger imaginary communities um, of cooperators made up of people who do not live um, uh, contiguously in space. That is my work. Um, The mystical connections between humans and animals Um, are so widely explored in myth and folklore that are often, unfortunately, um, ignored in the world today. But one wonders, nonetheless, if the minds of animals are organized in story-like formats, as in Danny's wonderfully funny talk, and in the work of Matthias Gunther, who really gave the feeling that that you feel in these societies how people the integration between humans and animals. And here I can't resist a little extra story. Um, Lorna Marshall told me they were, the Marshall family went to the Bushmen and did some of the early ethnography, John Marshall's wonderful films, Elizabeth Thomas Marshall's great books. And when they went out there, the, the Bushmen believed, as they do today, that in the past, the time before ancestors, that Um, humans and animals had all their body parts mixed up. And in modern times, they exchanged them and became what they are today and became finished. And um, when Lawrence Marshall appeared with his very, very heavy chest, hairy chest, they looked at him and they said, that man isn't finished yet. (laughs) Um, So, and then... um, so myth and folklore not only secure the normative, but they um, but play a possible source of myth and stories penetrates the traditions of many societies 
Tricksters or mythical characters have the pluck to break with societal norms, expanding the imagination of the possible and creating the variation on which cultural evolution draws. And Matthias Gunther's work is superb on this. And one would have to say, when people hear these stories and tricksters doing outrageous things, um, people sit there and love it and laugh and think about it. They don't say, oh, that's a bad thing to do. And then myth springs eternal to penetrate science, um, as in the hunting hypothesis, it structures questions asked in research and paths of investigation that follow, sometimes leading to productive outcomes and other times leading to dead ends. Karen Kramer's talk on the um, hunting hypothesis speaks to this. And while myths can brew trust and make pr behavior predictable, those explaining plagues and disasters can also challenge trust social relations, and institutions, as Mark Honigsbang has you know, clearly shown us in looking, tracing the history of plagues. With social media and digital communication, myths proliferate in the modern world, as in QAnon and Pizzagate, um, as Timothy has wonderfully showed us. And fortunately, he is looking at ways to analyze the structure of these things that will give us perhaps some way to counter them. It's often much less costly for people to buy into myths that we know are untrue. And this is through myths in all societies in order to express social solidarity. It is much less costly to buy into something that's untrue than to question them and experience social exclusions. And these are attitudes that we certainly see in vaccine hesitancy. So to conclude, myth is like a river that flows out of the past through the lives of people in all societies, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. And to conclude, we would all like to thank I would like to thank all the speakers, Danny and I would, and the imaginary community formed by the Carter Symposiums. None of this would be possible without the magicians who managed to pull together the meetings without a glitch. Linda Nelson, Pascal Gagneur, Jesse Roby, Lindsay Hunter, and Kay Kaya. They are truly awesome. And it is such a joy to return to face-to-face -face gatherings that so mirror the format of our deep evolutionary past. Thank you. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna begin with some questions that we've received. If you still have some questions, you can give it to a CARTA member for specific uh, uh, of our speakers. Um, and so maybe I can ask the speakers to come forward as do. Brian, uh, uh, the first uh, question with a follow-up comes to you. And uh, you mentioned that science tries to get closer to the truth, maybe. Uh, and, uh, but what about when science is maliciously used to distort the truth, if you have some thoughts on that? And a very related question was about if science challenges the way us in the way other kinds of stories don't. Do you think that scientific thinking is a fundamental, it's fundamental and inevitable, or is it an 
unnatural part of human nature. Science, uh, science does try to get closer to the truth, and it gets there by by constantly allowing itself to be challenged. Um, sometimes there is such a a cohesion of, of wrong ideas, uh, like uh, like racism or uh, or sexism, that the, the challenge doesn't come through early enough. But uh, in time, science gets uh, corrected and manages to um, manages to uh, to d- discard the old ideas when there's evidence against them. So um, I, I don't think. Uh, I don't think that it, that it's science that is itself uh, malicious. It's, it's simply that it, it's a powerful tool that can be used either for, for good or, or for ill, like any tool. Um, so I, I don't think there's a, a there's a malicious maliciousness in science. It's just that science is is human. It's therefore fallible, and uh, it, it can be used the wrong way at times. Um, if, if science challenges, in a way, stories do not, do you think scientific thinking is a fundamental, inevitable, or unnatural to human nature? Well, um, certainly observation and, uh, and explanation through, through myth and stories are, uh, are, seem, seem to be an innate part of human nature. So we, we try to explain things. Uh, in the past, we tried to explain things through agents who were... Uh, perhaps unseen, through, through spirits and gods and, and so on. And that seemed to, to satisfy us. And it took a, a very long time for things to come. First, um, perhaps in, in the 5th fifth, fifth, fifth century BCE, Greece, uh, when Xenophanes and Democritus started to question the, the stories of the gods as explanation. But it really took an, until the, the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, where that became really established uh, in there were scientific elements in other other communities in, in China, in India, in in the Middle East, but all those things came together as uh, sufficiently robust science to endure only in in Europe in, in the uh, just after the Renaissance, and uh, and I think. One of my the- one of my theories is that science is, is actually unnatural. It requires us to reject our beliefs, uh, which is not usually we want to hang on to our beliefs. Uh, and science, in that sense, is is deeply unnatural. And that's why things like evolution, say, are, are very very hard for many people to, to grasp. Thank you. Uh, next question is for Dr. Barker, if you want to join us and. Uh, uh, this uh, audience member wanted to know whether in the effort to catalog mythemes, is that how you pronounce that, mythemes? Um, how you don't wind up falling into the same trap of previous researchers of allowing biases like gender, etc., to influence the ways in which you actually folklorists catalog. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good question. And I think I have a I think I have a two-part answer. The first is, um, if it comes across that I'm pleased um, or supporting the old 
indexes, whenever I find them represented in newer forms of intellectual activity. That isn't what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is there's a continuity that we need to question and be concerned with. So that's on dealing with the indexes and finding a way to map them onto current intellectual work. And then as a folklorist, my solution to that is to simply go to the places and speak to the people and speak to the attitudes and speak to the areas that weren't included in those old indexes and make sure that they are included in future iterations. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, and I think an important point about that is that looking at the structural alignment in, in the work that you do of existing motifs and, and folk tales uh, and how that maps on to current work is enlightening even of itself with all of its biases. Uh, the next questions uh, for uh, you, Dr. Polly. <laughs> See you furiously working on that there. Um, uh, and the question from one of the questions from the audience is uh, about these the storytelling about people who live in distant places and whether and the question is how often do storytellers impersonate in specific individual peoples how often do they do actually do impressions uh, through skillful mimicry or is or are these all more um, uh, generic forms described more objectively um, or do their traits simply emerge from the nature of the stories? The pantomime is to die for. It, it has everybody rolling on the ground. You know, stories in, in Wishman's stories, they don't have to be actually factually completely true, but they have to ring true. And it's the pantomime that makes them ring true because they ca capture the character of the person. And so, yes, I mean, the stories have extraordinary amount of pantomime. Uh, thank you. And, and there was a, a kind of an interesting additional question that sort of a follow-up question, but uh, this uh, individual thinks of fire as, you know, a component of the local environment, and they just was curious about your, your thoughts about maybe situations in which Stories aren't told around fires. Do local, other local environmental factors influence the, the context and the quality of storytelling? Okay, in the past, people were really busy in the day and working all the time, hunting and gathering, and I d didn't hear, I had very few stories. Today, I've also studi um, studied modern stories, and people, they can't make a living from hunting and gathering, and many of them have no occupation. And they sit around all day and um, drink tea with maybe six teaspoons of sugar. And so I would say, what replaces the fire for... St and they also tell stories at night. But in the day, what replaces the fire for a stimulus would be tea and sugar. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And Matthias, the, the next question is for you. Um, and this question relates to the etymology, uh, believe it or not, of the word uh, therianthrope, uh, and specifically what therian means and where the whole phrase comes from, and a little bit more about that. Oh, uh, well, it's from Greek. From Greek. Uh, theory is, is animal, and anthrope is, is human. And uh, the term's been around in folklore for quite a while, I think, 
but it gained real prominence through the work of David Lewis Williams, who is a South African um, archaeologist who has studied um, Bushman mythology, especially the context, and also Bushman rock art. And he brought this into the parlance of uh, people like myself who study uh, sun mythology and cosmology. Yeah. Uh, great. And there's a follow-up question, which is, they just wanted to know the name of the book that you mentioned a few times that you just completed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 it's two volumes. I, uh, <laughs> very weighty. <laughs> Human-animal relationships in sun and hunter-gatherer cosmology. And then the first volume is about therianthropes and transformation, and the second is, looks phenomenologically at the experience bodily and through the imagination of transformation of the human-animal kind. So it's, and it looks, the second volume looks at, um, has a long a chapter, a section on uh, the Eastern Inuit as a comparison, and also a section on Western uh, perceptions of the human admiration, including Rot Peter, uh, Red Peter. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so anyway, there, there's. I wasn't going to do a plug on my book, but well, I've done it. <laughs> Thank you. And the next question is for Karen, Dr. Kramer. Uh, and one question was uh, whether there is any evidence to suggest that. Uh, or that women or children do any uh, any kind of participating in hunting in addition to gathering. So is there a role, what role do they play in the entire hunting process or procurement of meat, et cetera, processing? Okay, there is, um, yeah, there's a fair literature on that. Uh, Women will, women and children, uh, especially uh, shellfish, um, if you want to call that game, um, they are very, uh, you know, you can sort of see that as being analogous to uh, to gathering. Um, small, you know, something we don't find in the archaeological record because it's not going to preserve are uh, small games. So little mice or, or lizards or little rodents. Um, kids definitely spend a lot of time going after that, uh, those kinds of food items, both girls and boys. And then certainly as women get to be older, um, once there's, you know, usually we, um, you know, there's a time allocation conflict between women of reproductive age taking care of children and, uh, and, and hunting larger game. So we do get certainly in the hunters and gatherers that I work with, the women who hunt larger game are usually older uh, post-reproductive women. So you get it kind of it. It, uh, it, 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 and it can be very opportunistic. We have some great ethnographic examples of, um, of Agta women taking out their digging sticks and very opportunistically, if they see something, they can, they can immediately sort of turn that into a bow and uh, opportunistically uh, hunt, dispatch uh, game. So there certainly are, uh, there is not a, uh, you know, a rigid, there is a division of labor, but I would not call it, um, you know, black and white or rigid. Right. And, and another short question, just maybe briefly, was some, uh, a number of people asked if there was some 
just quick information you could share about the rough caloric, you know, in, intake from uh, gathered food versus meat in, in some of the societies that you've studied? Well, it's certainly a very valuable resource that is really uh, underrepresented uh, both in ethnographies and in the archaeological record are uh, underground storage organs. So roots, tubers, corms, those kinds of foods, um, they are highly variable around the world uh, in terms of their fat and their protein content. Uh, And in South America, at least, um, they are very dense, caloric, and have a fair amount of protein in them in contrast to many of the much larger tubers, especially that the Hadza uh, access. There's a great deal of variety. But there are some nuts are very valuable. Seeds are very valuable calorically. Thank you. Um, If not tests, what, if anything, would convince you that other animals tell stories? Oh, um, well, I thought the end of my talk made it clear that I think animals are telling stories and certainly will be um, through, through uh, AI. Um, no, no, we have, a, we, have a, no, we have a large history. So what would convince me, uh, this, this wasn't a talk that I was giving about uh, whether or not animals can tell stories. It was a talk really about the stories that humans tell about animals telling stories. And that's a Gordian knot that I implicitly at least suggest uh, will never be cut. Um, it's uh, the, 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 the ambiguity that's inherent in our, our higher order projections, our anthropomorphisms of animals, as witnessed by all the folk tales and storytelling for, for all time and place, uh, are surely evidence that if we really think that uh, a chimpanzee signing um, is not a rich projective space for the human mind to operate, then we, we may need to go back to some of the folkloric indexes, even the ones that Brandon and I have created to match together the folk tales and the science. So. From your talk... I take it that you don't see ability to make fire was a prerequisite for Homo erectus to migrate out of Africa or Neanderthals and Donisovans to survive in cold climates. How do you think they pulled off these feats? Other texts such as animal skin clothing, something else? Or was it opportunistic use of naturally occurring fire enough? Here's your question. Um, So my first thing is that as a scientist, I could be completely wrong, right? You know, that I'm I'm very upfront about it. This is what I can support based on current data. Current data, one of the most fascinating things is where we have zero evidence of fire is um, in Europe for Homo erectus, which is weird. I, 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 you know, that... So then you say, well, how did they pull it? You know, how, do, how, what is the way of life that would allow a hominin creature to survive in Georgia um, without fire? And I have to say, without tools that are designed particularly for scraping or preparing hides, that's also absent. So it's a puzzle, and I don't want to brush it away by saying, oh, here's an answer. 
Um, possibilities include high degree of mobility, so that maybe you are seasonally mobile over long distances. But I, I think particularly when we look at Neanderthals and glacial climates, I don't know the answer to that. How do you get by, even if you're a Neanderthal with preserving and keeping fire, how does this work? And um, the, Harold Dibble, who passed away a few years ago, actually was showing that there's, a, there's an opposite relationship, that you find less fire on Neanderthal sites in colder periods because there's less biomass to, to catch fire and there's less fuel is one potential reason. But I think that's one of these questions we don't, we don't really have a grasp of yet, how, this, how that aspect of their lives worked. So there's still problems to, to figure out. Thanks. So the next one is for Mark. Um, in regard to anti-science medicine movements in the U.S., I have observed a closing of the circle between polit political extremes, particularly in language and studies coming from the social sciences. What can we do? What, what we do? language <laughs> do we need to use to avoid furthering anti-science slash medicine sentiment while also furthering post-colonial research. How can science medicine better work with the social sciences to reduce anti-science medicine sentiment? My answer will be very short. We need to tell better stories about science. That's the answer. Uh, albeit recognizing that sometimes, uh, as, as Brian just mentioned, uh, science sometimes gets its own stories wrong, but it is a self-correcting mechanism. Uh, the point about anti-science or pseudoscience or conspiracy theories is that what makes them alluring is they tell good stories and their narratives are by definition incapable of being disproved. A conspiracy theory is something that can't be disproved. It's similar to religion. You can't disprove a religious belief. Um, and this goes right back to um, the turtles when, uh, I forget, the Greek who actually thought, well, maybe we're, the world isn't resting on a turtle. Maybe we're just floating, you know. The problem with that is it, it introduces uncertainty, contingency, and a lot of people find that very unsettling. Uh, and that's my answer. Uh, it's difficult to address. I don't think we do it through networks. I think we do it through getting much better uh, at scientists at telling these stories. I mean, we've got examples now today. I mean, people like people, uh, Peter Hotez is, is the standout example, I would say. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they're behind all these networks, um, there are storytellers who are making a lot of money out of uh, weaving, uh, you know, these confections, a bit of science here, a bit of, you know, uh, and that's the problem. And it's all amplified by, uh, by the Internet and social media. Uh, I don't know if that answered the question. It seemed to be getting at colonialism and other things too. But, yeah, but, you know, um, medicine doesn't have a great record on this, if you, if you look, you know. Um, you ask why, I mean, I alluded to this in my talk, why, why uh, I mean, obviously there's vaccine hesitancy across society, but um, it was noticeable that um, uh, groups who maybe don't share the benefits or don't have a uh, good experience of accessing medicine or who have historically experienced, you know, uh, oppression through medicine, 
of course they're more distrustful. Of course they're going to hesitate to take vaccines. Uh, so that's something that medicine itself has to acknowledge and, um, uh, you know, make reparations for. Thank you. Okay, so I have some more here. Um, uh, uh, this is for um, Matthias. Is there less theory anthropic cave art early on in prehistory compared to later? I'm sorry. You can read, yeah. Is there less theranthropic cave? Is there less theranthropic cave art early on in prehistory compared to later? I would say I, I don't know so much as much as I should. It's a new thing I want to get into about the upper Paleolithic art. I don't think that motif is all that that frequent. Um, there's a famous Litra uh, Frère, the sorcerer, uh, shaman figure. Um, but in, in, in terms of sun rock art, the theranthropic motif uh, is, I don't think there's any less or any more throughout the, the centuries and millennia even that this art has been produced. Um, it's the theranthropic motif, even though it is found universally in, in the art, is not that common. I mean, most of the depictions of animals are actual animals, and there's also quite a few humans. Um, but interspersed amongst them, very often on the same uh, multi-figure panel, you've got animals and humans, real ones, and then here and there... Uh, the therianthrope um, in, in amongst them, yeah. So I, I think there is no no uh, change in the frequency of this motif over the uh, centuries. I think um, one extra interesting study I know by Thomas Dowson. He studied um, figures portrayed in art before the arrival of the Bantu populations into the area, and they were all stick figures. And then as after the arrival of the Bantu, people began to portray themselves, Bushmen, as Bushmen, f their bodies filled out, their decorations, and so on. So interaction with another group led to a very different portrayal and contrast. So that's an interesting point. Okay, the next one is... Um, Again for um, Mark, oh, here goes. <laughs> Driving cars is a similar tenet in terms of social trust. Hence why we get so angry when someone violates traffic laws. In Arizona, they shoot. Both spoken and unspoken. How do you think self-driving cars will impact the society's trust structure regarding transportation? <laughs> Um, very simple. Don't trust AI. It's evil. <laughs> no, I mean, that, more serious answer. I mean, um, AI just reflects our own biases, right? I think you, you showed that very eloquently when you, you, you ran uh, What Would the Chimp Say through AI. Um, so, um, yeah, um, I suppose, you know... Um, 
what I didn't talk about in, in, my, in my talk is that, you know, distrust is also very valuable and, and important, you know. Um, uh, you know, that serves an important social function and um, it's at the heart of science, right? Questioning, distrust. Um, and conspiracy theories are driven by the fact that science has not always acknowledged um, the social context and the biases that are inherent in some of the, uh, you know, the research choices. I mean, I think vaccines are particularly prone to this because, uh, you know, vaccinology is the classic example of an applied empirical science. Uh, but we don't always know exactly how vaccines work or produce their protective effects. We know using epidemiology that they do have these effects, but we can't always say precisely why. Uh, so I think... I've got off self-driving cars, haven't I? So I'm going tangent. Um, but, yeah, I, I, think, I, I, I don't think we will know. I think that, like most things, we'll grow to trust self-driving cars because, presumably, when the technology gets right, they will reduce accidents. Uh, I'm particularly looking forward to it because it means I'll be able to read a book while travelling. <laughs> Thank you. Do cave pictographs and evidence of fire in caves represent the most ancient, tangible evidence of myth transmission? That's hard. <laughs> so, um, so cave art is a much later phenomenon. And um, just following up maybe uh, on some of what Matthias was saying, um, there's an issue in Africa that we can't really date the rock art. And the amount of research that's been done in southern Africa, at least, um, but all of Africa, really, given the landmass compared to Europe, the, it's just a staggering um, difference of, of intensity of research. And what that means is that for, um, well, the southern Africa, which I am beginning to know, um, the amount that we don't know is quite overwhelming. Um, so, for example, how early are there therion, th these manic animal things? I can't answer that question. When are there sites where you first get fire and rock art in Africa? I, I don't know. Um, we just don't have the data yet because of the lack of intensity. I know that at Wanderwerk we have human occupation going back, back about in the later Stone Age, you know, the, the ancestral sun, going back about fifteen to 20,000 years. But whether the rock art is that old, don't know yet. So, so I can't really answer. Yeah. I, I was just interested if Tim's undergraduate team did any research on positive agents towards either um, January 6th or the pandemic. And, uh, did you look at the messaging from the CDC and how that spread? In other words... Oh, how have we looked at that? Yeah, so I mean, we have a. Right, so we did. We actually did work a little bit with the, the CDC uh, on on messaging. The uh, the problem with the the CDC messaging was, you know, as a as a folklorist, when I sat down to sort of take apart their anecdote that they were telling uh, in their in their pamphlets that they were handing out to to uh, new parents, uh, which I was at that time. <laughs> 
<laughs> was um, the, the message they had was that we're not 100% sure uh, about the science, right? So they were, they were giving the wrong uh, message in anecdote form. They were bringing statistics to a story fight. You never do that, right? You bring stories to a story fight. Um, and you need to have stories that, that are tuned to the, the beliefs uh, of the different communities uh, that they were uh, that you're working with, right? So that, that each community is, is different. They've got different beliefs. They've got different fears. They've got different needs. Uh, and so you do need to tailor stories to that. If that's something that we found, you know, going even back archivally uh, with the storytelling. As far as the parlor data goes, we really just were focused on the parlor data. We weren't sure what we were going to find. We had an idea. We didn't realize that it would be this semantically consistent and that the ideas for a, uh, a march on the Capitol uh, uh, emerged so early on in the discussion. So that was, that was what we were focused on there. But yes, you could use it for poor, positive, okay, I too. I see organizers pacing, so it's time, <laughs> yeah. it's time to break up. Thank you all for all of your attention. I just would like to say a few words. I want to close the symposium by thanking everybody, uh, the speakers, the organizers, you, the audience here and uh, uh, online. And I, I'd like to, to remember a very close friend, uh, Annette Merle-Smith, who for many, many years has been a champion for, for CARTA. She has supported the Salk Institute as well. And within CARTA, she's been supporting the symposia, uh, the student fellowships, very importantly, making, uh, allowing many of the graduate students to add anthropogeny towards their PhD programs. Uh, I want to thank uh, those who made the symposium possible. Uh, the symposium chairs, thank you both very, very much, our featured speakers, all our sponsors and supporters, and of course you, the audience. Thank you very, very much, and enjoy your weekend. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.